Welcome to today's Clinical Problem Solving Podcast. My name is Stephanie Rasmussen, and I am the host for today's episode. I am currently a fourth-year medical student at UC Davis School of Medicine in Sacramento, California, and I'm a soon-to-be internal medicine intern. Today's podcast episode came to fruition as part of a curriculum improvement project I am working on here at UC Davis as part of the Doctoring Four class. I really enjoy clinical reasoning, so I wanted to design something that would help medical students in their clinical years build up their clinical reasoning skills. Today's episode is on altered mental status, which is one of the UC Davis 43 chief complaints that medical students at UC Davis should know by the time they graduate. Here to help with the case today are two discussants, Dr. Alan Yee from the Department of Neurology and Dr. Elise Harris from the Department of Medicine. Dr. Yee and Dr. Harris, would you each like to introduce yourselves? Sure. Hi. Thank you for uh, inviting us to be here for this podcast. Again, my name is Elise. I'm a current chief uh, resident for the internal medicine department and uh, very excited to do all terminal status. It's a, it's a fun one. And thank you uh, for the invitation. And I'm Alan. I am, I'm a vascular neurologist here at the university and uh, all terminal status is something we see quite commonly. Glad to be here. So before we dive into the case, I br- briefly want to go over the outline for today's session. I'm going to present an unknown mystery altered mental status case to our two discussants. The goal is to learn the clinical reasoning of experienced clinicians and chief residents. The discussants have no prior knowledge of today's case. I will reveal information in a stepwise fashion to recreate the clinical presentation of the case. Our discussants will share their thoughts throughout the case. Throughout today's case, our listeners will learn the differential diagnosis for altered mental status, be able to identify key history and physical exam to formulate their diagnosis, learn the red flag signs of altered mental status and memory loss, and learn the basic workup for altered mental status. So let's dive into the case, starting with the chief complaint. The chief complaint for today's case, it was a 65-year-old previously healthy Vietnamese woman presenting with confusion, staring spells, and hallucinations of seeing rats in her room. So I'll start by asking our discussants, when you hear this kind of chief complaint, what's going through your mind in terms of differential? So I think a a couple of things come to mind Um, with confusion and elderly people. You always have to think about, uh, she's a woman, so UTIs are extremely common and can definitely um, be a part of the differential. So infection is is on my mind, staring spells. I'm sure Dr. Yi will expand a little bit on this, but, you know, uh, seizures is a common, uh, you know, kind of thing I'm thinking about with that, hallucinations. You know, you think of older people often having or being on multiple medications. So there are some medication interactions um, that are that are, uh, you know, playing into her um, presentation. So those are kind of the first few things. Of course, the differential is really wide, but just those uh, kind of things are standing out to me now. And I would agree with Elise. Um, I think um, uh, thinking about it from a neurological perspective, uh, I think of sort of broad categories uh, is it a vascular condition, an ictal or a seizure-related uh, phenomenon, a toxic metabolic or inflammatory problem, and lastly, neoplastic? And along those multiple different disease categories, I agree with the potential seizure-related explanation. Um, and if that is the case, then we have to think about any other linking symptoms and or signs or demographics the patient has. Uh, the confusion might be related to that primary Uh, diagnosis or episode, or it might be related to an underlying other neurological problem that causes both seizures as well as other uh, clinical manifestations. I think we can't really ignore the hallucinations because that is, I think, a key symptom uh, to take note of. And so uh, 
sort of to briefly summarize, I agree that is a quite a broad differential diagnosis. Uh, I think using her age and her demographic kind of makes me think about other more uh, unusual conditions in the autoimmune and inflammatory world. Uh, if she were younger and of childbearing age, then it would sort of uh, target me towards uh, a more unusual condition along those lines. So I'll sort of leave it broad strokes for the time being, and we'll, we'll love to hear more about the case. Yeah, thanks for your comments. You bring up, you both bring up some really uh, good points about this case. So let's dive in a little bit more into the history of present illness. So the history was gathered from the patient's sister because she was unable to give us a history herself. But basically, she was at her last normal three weeks prior to admission, and she was previously healthy and living independently. But two weeks prior to admission, she stopped taking care of herself. She stopped eating. She stopped showering. She stopped taking her medications. So her sister actually had her move in with her. And then over the two weeks when the patient was living with her sister, she developed staring spells where she would sit for hours at a time and stare at nothing in particular. She had periods of mumbling to herself. She started having these visual hallucinations of the rats running around the house. She lost the ability to ambulate without assistance, and she couldn't complete any of her activities of daily living uh, independently. And she would only intermittently respond to questions. So when the sister would interact with her, ask her questions, the patient would sometimes respond, and then sometimes the patient wouldn't respond. In terms of other uh, history in the HPI, she didn't have a history of any psychiatric disorders. She didn't have a history of any recent infectious symptoms, never complained of a headache, hadn't started any new medications, to her sister's knowledge, didn't use any recreational drugs, and there were no witnessed falls or other trauma. How does this history of present illness change what you were thinking originally with the chief complaint? It's interesting, um, the stop taking, the, the patient stopped taking care of herself. That sounds like it was a very abrupt thing. Um, Dr. Yee mentioned vascular causes, um, you know, some type of CVA possibly, uh, you know, comes to mind just with the inability to do any of your ADLs. And then it's interesting too, with like the visual hallucinations, sometimes you kind of think about like Parkinsonian type stuff. I always think about that, but you know, with the acute onset, that doesn't really fit. And then intermittently responding to questions and kind of like talking and mumbling to yourself, you definitely think more psychoses as a, as a cause. So it's, it's interesting that the, the history tells us she has no psych disorders and um, no new medications. So it'd be very interesting to see what her workup uh, becomes. I, I absolutely agree, Lisa. Um, I think just, just thinking out loud with you uh, that Again, thinking of broad strokes disease categories, certainly an acute uh, cerebral vascular event can lead to a sudden change in neurological function or dysfunction, but we often would expect a very focal symptom and or confirmatory sign on physical examination. Mm -hmm. So I think I'd need to know a little bit more about what particular functions she cannot do aside from the descriptions of behaviors that she's no longer doing, such as eating and showering. Uh, so I think uh, that is an important point, number one. She has disturbances of her, of her mind, quote unquote, or psyche. Uh, and I think the description of visual hallucinations, staring spells and mumbling all really suggest a disorder of behavior. So whether that's a primary psychiatric condition and disturbance of behavior or a secondary manifestation of an underlying primary brain organic problem, or is there a systemic condition that's causing both the psychiatric manifestation of this, as well as a disturbance of, of brain function, so to speak, that causes disorders and I can't eat, I can't shower and so on. But I'm, I'm, this is quite fascinating. Were there any specific questions you would have asked in the HPI at this point? Anything that the primary team missed that we should have asked earlier? I think the other thing I would wanna know is the travel history that she was a Vietnamese woman. So I wonder what her you know, immigration status, was she born here in the US? Has she recently traveled back to Vietnam to uh, visit family? Kind of what, what the story is behind that. I can't answer that one. Yeah, so she was born in Vietnam, but it had been decades since she'd been back. Okay. I'd also like to ask, um, and we'll certainly hear more about that in her medical history, if she has any known vascular risk factors that would increase her probability or risk of having a cerebral vascular event. Had she had any prior recent episodes in the past 30 days or so of a sudden lateralizing symptom, such as I can't see, move, or feel one side of my body, or have sudden dysfunction in speaking, that might suggest a transient ischemic attack like a TIA uh, that was subsequently followed by a stroke. 
although I think uh, a primary stroke is, is not likely the cause given the other multiple symptoms that she's had. I think I'd like to ask if she's had any history or any risk factors that might predispose her to having cancer, particularly intra-abdominal organs and um, constitutional symptoms in recent days or months would be important to, that might guide us along those lines. So on review of systems for general, she didn't have any fevers, chills, or unexplained weight loss or weight gain. For neuro, to expand on that a little bit, she had no observed classic seizure-like activity, meaning like the jerking um, movements. Uh, she had not complained of headaches and she had no witnessed syncopal events. Her sister hadn't witnessed her have a cough recently. The only other positive ROS is she did have some recent abdominal pain with vomiting after she was eating in the two weeks that she was living with her sister, but in the three days prior to admission, she hadn't vomited at all, although she also had had minimal oral intake in the three days leading up to admission. The sister denied seeing any blood in the vomit as well. In terms of her past medical history, she does have hypertension. It was unclear how long she had had hypertension or whether or not it was well controlled or not. She did have this remote history of depression that the sister had said. She had hepatic steatosis diagnosed in 2018, and she had uterine fibroids. In terms of past surgical history, the only surgery she'd had was an, a hand and upper arm orthopedic surgery at some unknown date. For social history, for diet, she was a lifelong vegetarian. She was a never smoker. She never used alcohol, and she, didn't, she did not use recreational drugs to the sister's knowledge. In terms of her home medication, she took Captopril 25 milligrams daily, Atenolol 50 milligrams daily for her, her hypertension. And then it was reported that she took paroxetine, but it was unknown what dose, if she was taking it or when she started it. She didn't have any known allergies. And then for family history, there was no neurological disorders or autoimmune diseases that ran in the family to their knowledge. Before we move on to the physical exam, walk me through what you're thinking at this point And if there's anything in particular that could be the leading diagnosis for this history. I think looking at her past medical history first, um, you know, besides the hypertension, nothing really, really stands out. Um, you did tell us she has a history of depression and she's on an SSRI. And certainly we don't know the dose, you know, you might think of serotonin syndrome possibly as a cause. It doesn't really kind of fit here. And then in terms of her social history, the lifelong vegetarian I, I always kind of think of, um, you know, vitamin deficiencies sometimes that can occur. We don't know a lot about her diet history. Uh, vegetarianism is alone is not necessarily a, a risk factor. Um, I kind of think more veganism, but certainly, you know, we don't know a lot about her diet. Again, doesn't really fit with why she would be acutely altered now. The tobacco history, uh, Dr. Yi was trying to get at kind of like other uh, vascular risk factors for like CVA and things. It's good that she's not smoked, kind of helps reduce her risk. Certainly the hypertension uh, increases her risk. And then, you know, alcohol, drugs, not, no history there. For her medications, she's on some kind of basic hypertensive meds that I don't typically think of necessarily as causing altered male status. We need some more history <laughs> or need some more workup. I agree with all of that. I, I would maybe just add a couple of additional uh, queries. Um, looking at her medical history, the history of depression, could she have a psychiatric outbreak of some sort related to an underlying undiagnosed psychiatric disorder, let's say bipolar, where she has a, a manic outbreak uh, as her current presentation, and what was previously diagnosed as depression maybe may not have been depression. The history of hepatic steatosis and uterine fibroids I have to wonder is if she's developed progressive liver disease and in the setting cannot metabolize the, I think the SSRI, the paroxetine, and could this contribute to cumulative effects? And, and like Dr. Harris had mentioned, uh, serotonergic toxicity or syndromes, I think would be one thing that her physical examination should help us define. I'm looking for specific abnormal signs. As far as her medications, I, I think that if she had some reason to have acute kidney injury and failure, where she cannot get rid of ACE inhibitor, uh, then increasing the risk or capital contributing to kidney failure, if that is possibly leading to uremic encephalopathy or some kind of cognitive impairment or metabolic problem uh, from uremia. And then the, the veganism or the vegetarianism, I think uh, being sort of neurocentric, only one rare condition would sort of make me wonder if that's relevant. Could she have been protein averse her entire life uh, that you might see people with a uricycle disorder or OTC deficiency? 
uh, which is very uncommon, and she's 65, but adult onset cases have been reported. Uh, but beyond that, those are kind of the main things that are history kind of shout out to me. Yeah, I know when we were getting this history, we, we had asked so many questions, but the sister wasn't able to answer them. And unfortunately, the patient wasn't able to answer them for herself either. So let's move on to physical exam and see if that helps us at all. So in terms of the physical exam, when we met her in the emergency room, her temperature was 36.9 degrees Celsius. Her heart rate was 71. Her blood pressure was 150 over 79. Her respiratory rate was 16. Her oxygen saturation on room air was 98%, and her weight was 55.2 kilograms. For general, she was an elderly female lying in bed with no apparent distress, and she was intermittently mumbling to herself and staring into space. For HEENT, her extraocular movements were intact. She had anicteric sclera. She had moist mucous membranes. And for neck, no lymphadenopathy. For cardiovascular, regular rate and rhythm, normal S1 and S2, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops, and she had two-plus peripheral pulses. For pulmonary, she had normal respiratory effort, and her lungs were clear to auscultation bilaterally. For abdominal exam, she had normal bowel sounds, and her abdomen was non-distended, soft, and non-tender. We could not identify any hepatomegaly. For extremities, she was warm and well-perfused without edema. Skin, we didn't see any rashes or ulcerations on the face, abdomen, or extremities. For mental status, she was intermittently engaged with the examiner, and she could not follow directions. She was alert and oriented to person, and only intermittently oriented to place, and she was responding to internal stimuli. Her affect was flat, and the mocha, 3 out of 30. In terms of her neurological exam, her cranial nerves, we were only able to test several of them because she couldn't follow directions, but for the ones we tested, cranial nerve two was normal, cranial nerve seven, her face was symmetric at rest, cranial nerve eight, her hearing appeared to be intact when we were speaking with her through the interpreter, but we were unable to assess the rest of the cranial nerves. For motor, her strength was five out of five in the upper and lower extremities. She had normal tone and she didn't have any adventitious movements or tremors. For sensation, her sensation was intact to light touch bilaterally in the upper and lower extremities. Her reflexes were two plus in the upper and lower extremities bilaterally. For coordination on the left, she was unable to perform rapid alternating movements or finger to nose, but she was able to do it on the right, but she was unable to follow directions to test coordination in the lower extremities. She had poor balance, so we were unable to assess her gait. So now that we've gone through the physical exam, is there anything here that helps us with our differential? So I think right off the bat, you know, looking at her vitals, she's, she's afebrile. Her heart rate is 71, totally normal for her. Uh, she's mildly hypertensive, 150 over 79, but certainly thinking about infectious things. And so her not having a very high temp goes away from that. The rest of her general exam and heart and lungs, pretty benign, like nothing really stands mm -hmm. out. We talked about a lot of different things. I think things are kind of falling from the differential based off that the money is really at this mental status and neuro exam, which I know Dr. Yi probably is anxious to add a lot more to, but I think her mental status is really profound for the 65 year old woman. A mocha of three is impressive. And the fact that she's so stimulated internally, like she's not able to engage with the examiner is really quite profound to the point where she can't follow any directions, you know, her tone is normal. I think those things are pretty interesting and, and point, point more away from like a real neurologic cause. Well, those are excellent points. And, and I think I would add as far as her, her vital signs and her current neuromuscular exam, what, what she does not have are very frank signs of uh, neuromuscular hyperactivity or dysautonomia, which usually manifests as tachycardia and being a bit more hypertensive. And febrile to some, to some degree. And we had mentioned, I think both of us had, had, had question marked the serotonergic toxicity. And usually those are several features that we would typically expect to see. Uh, you might expect to see some increased tone of which she does not have. So as far as that metabolic cause for her entire presentation, it's far less likely. Her, her examination is, is quite abnormal. Uh, there are multiple neurological domains that are, are pathological uh, in that her cognition is three of three on a mocha. She, I think, as, as Dr. Harris was mentioning, she has really poor response to the environment and whether she's responding internally or just not responding at all. Her mumbling to self, uh, I think, is, is a very unique behavior. Uh, and is that solely uh, responding to herself or she just is catatonic and cannot 
um, express herself, I, I, I suppose. The, the only other question mark and lateralization on her exam is the left arm being unable to perform rapid alternating movements as compared to the right. Uh, is that because there's truly unilateral dysfunction or just poor attention? And by the time the other parts of her body are tested, she just doesn't follow or um, can't capture enough or pay attention long enough to perform the tasks. And flat affect, I think, really suggests a, a global disturbance in either the psychiatric realm uh, mm -hmm. or an underlying cognitive uh, problem that's rapidly progressive. Something that I struggled with with this case was in terms of interpreting the neuro exam was how much is it because she couldn't follow directions versus she had a deficit? I think most of it was she was just, we couldn't hold her attention to get her to follow the directions. But I remember struggling with that when I first encountered this case. Okay, let's move on to the admission labs. For her chemistry, her sodium was 139, potassium 3, chloride 100, bicarb 27, BUN 8, creatinine 0 0.57, glucose was 122. For her liver panel, her calcium was 8.8, .8, her phosphorus was 3.5, her total protein was 7.3, the albumin was 4, the AST was 36, ALT 11, ALP 122, which was mildly elevated, T-Billy 0.8, and direct bilirubin was 0.2. In terms of her hematology, the white blood cell count was 4.4, the hemoglobin was 13.3, the hematocrit was 39.2, and the platelets were 243. The C-reactive protein was normal at 0.6. We did get a urinalysis from clean catch urine, which was only remarkable for ketones of 20. And we did a toxicology screen. Uh, we did a urine toxicology test and it was negative for methamphetamines, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, cocaine, and opiates. And her serum ethanol was negative. Do these basic labs help us at all? And what is your interpretation of them? Yeah, certainly looking at her chemistry, there's not any severe metabolic derangements there that would explain her altered mental status. Her ALKFOS um, being a little bit elevated as an isolated thing, hard to tell importance of it at the moment in the absence of other changes in your LFTs. Her CBC, her white count, right, 4.4 in the normal range, you know, so we're, we don't see like in a huge infectious process or, you know, she's not immunocompromised. So we would expect if she had some kind of infection there, uh, we would see a bump there and she's not profoundly anemic either. So, you know, really not super impressive. I was hoping the toxicology would show a little bit more, um, which, you know, it shows that her history was correct, that she wasn't using any, any substances that we might expect would, that would cause changes to her mental status. What other labs at this point would you want to get since the basic labs if anything, they helped us rule out a few things, but didn't really help us identify what exactly is going on. So what would you want at this point? I am um, just to throw a couple of ideas out there, even though her, her AST and LT are normal, uh, it'd be nice to see an ammonia level. I think not having much additional history about her environment and where she lives and her exposures, uh, a heavy metal screen uh, would be I think nice to see uh, arsenic uh, poisoning uh, in, in particular would be something I'd be uh, interested in excluding beyond or in addition to the other uh, heavy metals uh, that can lead to a myriad of, of her clinical findings. And uh, I think a syphilis screening test as well as HIV, uh, especially if she had, uh, I can't recall how long she'd been in the United States, but if somebody has, has, uh, had immigrated to the US, uh, what kinds of other uh, blood or um, sexually transmitted conditions can cause multiple uh, neurological manifestations and uh, in, in, in invasion of the central nervous system. So I think as far as other sort of basic things, I'd probably start there. Yeah, that sounds good. I agree. What about imaging? Would you get imaging at this point on this patient? I, I think it would be a miss to not get a basic CT head. <laughs> at, at the minimum, if the patient could tolerate it. So I, I definitely think uh, starting there would make sense. And I think it is part of the, the basic workup. And, and I'd even uh, go so far as to ask for an MR first, because if it's a person that you have concerns, it will not lie still, um, then probably with, uh, of the different um, pictures we can get, probably an MR eye of the brain with contrast might be the biggest bang for a buck. Um, yeah that there'd be a number of things that I think we'd focus on. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, you're in luck. We got both. <laughs> we got the CT head and the MRI. And then at this point, we also did an, a lumbar puncture as well. 
I'll talk about the lumbar puncture first. The CSF was clear and colorless. The red bloods, there were 17 red blood cells in it, one white blood cell. There were no abnormal cells seen on the cytospin. Glucose was 62 and the protein was 48. The normal range of, CS, of protein in the CSF is 15 to 45. In terms of the imaging, the CT head without contrast didn't show any intracranial hemorrhage or mass effect. And then the MRI without contrast showed no acute intracranial processes, but it did show chronic small vessel ischemic disease. So at this point, are these tests helpful at all? Yeah, I would, would have liked to see more on the CSF, um, <laughs> but I'm not surprised. I think given where we're kind of going with this case so far, uh, not surprising that the you know, the protein's only mildly, mildly elevated out of the normal range, you know, and then the imaging unfortunately doesn't help us too much. It, it does certainly rule out any um, kind of, you know, large tumor um, or other kind of vascular stuff. It, it does show she has some small vessel ischemic disease, which may just be age-related due to her long-standing hypertension, but certainly nothing stands out as kind of something I can put my nickel down on. And, and uh, I, I would agree, um, as far as the CSF, uh, although the, the cell count, uh, protein and glucose, tells that it, not, it unlikely is a, a bacterial uh, problem or a, or a chronic fungal problem, let's just say, I think more uh, cult uh, infections or inflammatory causes, I think, cannot be entirely excluded. In particular, um, the non-infectious causes of encephalitis or uh, a a, uh, a cerebrice, although her imaging wouldn't really suggest that. Uh, I, it'd be nice to see if we had ordered an encephalitis and meningitis panel. I, I probably would add a syphilis and HIV screening from that as well. And as far as the imaging, although there's no major obvious parenchymal lesion, um, I, uh, what often can be undercalled are subtle changes that can often be seen in autoimmune inflammatory conditions that do involve uh, the limbic system structurally, insular cortex, cingulate gyrus, uh, hippocampus, and other structures that on first glance, it, 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 they don't typically enhance uh, when they're not actively inflamed, and we can miss those uh, not uncommonly. We will get to some of those other labs. We did order them, um, but we'll reveal them shortly. Before I talk about those, though, I did have a question about an EEG. At what point is it worth getting an EEG on a person that's presenting with altered mental status? I often will ask the, our, our team to, to obtain one is if, number one, the urgency matters if they're, they're, they're in quite a severe encephalopathic state, and you don't have an alternative cause, uh, cause and they're, they have risk factors for seizures, and I will frequently get it early. If, however, they have a myriad of these symptoms and there's been this chronic progressive uh, kind of, not chronic progressive, but subacute progressive scenario, then I think getting it within the next 24 hours seems reasonable as far as timing. If, again, in her case, she has episodes that can be seen in patients with seizures, the staring spells, quote unquote, the periods of uh, poor attentiveness, and then a clean image. I think we need to have to exclude ongoing non-convulsive seizures. So I would say with this person, I probably would get it done within the next 24 to 48 hours after this first battery of testing is, is, is done. And that is what we did. We did get an EEG early on her. So before I talk about the other tests that we, the laboratory tests, I'll talk about the EEG findings. The description was periodic discharges generalized with triphasic morphology or triphasic waves. And it was continuous, slow, and generalized. In terms of the impression, it came back saying mild to moderate encephalopathy, Generalized periodic discharges with triphasic morphology are nonspecific and most often encountered in the setting of hepatic and metabolic encephalopathies. Triphasic wave encephalopathies have been described in the setting of cephalosporin CNS toxicities, and there was no evidence of seizures or, or areas of focal dysfunction present. So with this, was it helpful at all? Did it, or I guess this question is more for Dr. Yi, like how do you interpret this? Did this, how helpful was this result for us? It's helpful in that it excludes the patient's current state at the time of EG recording being due to seizures. So I can say with good confidence that at the time of her recording, she's not having active seizures to explain her clinical presentation. Um, but beyond that, triphasic waves, which is essentially what this described here, is sort of like seeing a non-sustained um, VT, where you have a couple of VTs here and there. They're there pretty regularly and, it's, it, it, and they kind of go away, but you still have to investigate what the cause of the underlying 
VT is, whether it's coronary disease, a conduction problem. And so like in this case, it's a general uh, electrographic biomarker that tells us there's a problem that's causing a global cerebral problem. Usually we often see this electrical characteristic finding in metabolic causes, liver, kidney, infection, you name it. So it's really broad strokes, but I think it was helpful in excluding one more urgent treatment that might be needed, which is seizures. Let's talk about some of the other labs that have come back. We tested for Wilson's disease with the ceruloplasm and the serum copper, both of which were normal. We looked at her thyroid function with the TSH, total T4, free T4, and free T3, all of which were normal. We did get a thyroid peroxidase antibody, which was elevated at 163, and the normal level for thyroid peroxidase antibody is less than 35. We got vitamin levels on her, and she was deficient in vitamin D, thiamine, and B12. The folate was normal, and the ammonia was normal. In terms of the other infectious workup, like HIV and the syphilis, we did get that, and it was also normal. I have several questions about these labs. How helpful are they? And can they, these lab abnormalities, can they explain what's going on? You know, the vitamin D, thymine, and B12 levels being very low certainly helped explain possibly like this altered mental status, but the thyroid peroxidase antibody, you know, we kind of usually use that to evaluate for Hashimoto's doesn't quite fit with (laughs) her TSH and T4, T3 levels. So I'm not sure how to interpret that. I agree. Um, uh, I would say that the ways that this is, um, I think, a bit more enlightening is that even though her thyroid her thyroid hormones themselves are normal levels, um, there is a condition called TREAT or steroid responsive encephalopathy and thyroiditis. Uh, which I think historically have been called thyroid encephalitis or had other, had other names, but uh, people can have isolated increased thyroid antibodies. Um, and her levels are, don't seem, they're, they're probably like four or five times above the, the normal value. I think the value or the threshold itself is not a defining characteristic. It's a clinical syndrome plus the presence of this, of which those patients do respond to, to steroids. Um, the thymine, I think being mildly low, but the fact that it is low, I can't ignore, uh, thinking about Korsakoff syndrome. I, I don't think it's, uh, Korsakoff Warnicke's or the longer, uh, excuse me, Warnicke's first and not the more chronic form, which is the, the, uh, the Warnicke Korsakoff syndrome, uh, which is a much more chronic smoldering progressive uh, condition often seen in alcoholics, as you all know, um, or if somebody has had intestinal absorption problems from prior intestinal surgery, but her folate is okay. And the B12 uh, isn't terribly low. And um, yeah, no, I think that's, that was kind of helpful uh, somewhat. (laughs) Yeah. You definitely read my mind a little bit, Dr. Yu, about the bringing up the steroid responsive encephalopathy, uh, because we, when we saw this thyroid peroxidase antibody, that was actually a question we had, should we start this patient on steroids? to see if she has any sort of improvement. For you, Dr. Yi, would you, do you think that it would be worth starting her on steroids at this point? Uh, not yet, uh, because I think there are a number of other conditions that have not entirely big, been excluded. Uh, and rather than masking some other um, causes of inflammation, if that's what she end up is discovered to have, I'd, I'd hate to start that early uh, because the, the, I don't think it's really clear about the timing of starting it, as long as you start it at some point, if that ends up being the final diagnosis. Mm-hmm. What kinds of conditions are you thinking of um, that we would need to evaluate for before starting the steroids? Um, I, I would still be concerned about a non-infectious inflammatory uh, cause or autoimmune inflammatory cause um, that I would not like to mask so early on. And we have a number of other uh, biological markers we send from serum and CSF, if there's leftover CSF, to test for these conditions. Um, and I think that the possibility of melting an underlying neoplasm is, is low, but I, I, I don't want to ignore that possibility just yet. Um, so those would be the two major categories I think I, I'd hold off on the steroids for right now. Yeah, that makes sense. At this point, we did talk to neurology about this patient and they recommended the same things. And so we did send off a pretty broad autoimmune workup as well. Uh, We sent the autoimmune encephalitis CSF panel to Mayo Clinic. We checked ANA, anti-SSA, anti-SSB, 
rheumatoid factor, myeloperoxidase antibody, antiprotonase 3 antibody, thyroglobulin antibody, and all of that came back normal. Um, so at that point, I mean, concurrently with getting that autoimmune workup, we did replete all of the vitamins that she was deficient in. And then after the autoimmune workup started coming back, neurology recommended that we start a steroid challenge to see if she could get any sort of improvement. So we gave her methylprednisolone one gram daily for five days. And then at the same time, we also consulted psychiatry, given her history of depression to see if maybe this is catatonia, maybe this is a primary psychiatric disorder and not necessarily a primary neurologic disorder. And psychiatry recommended that we do a lorazepam trial after the steroid challenge to give the steroids time to work, see if that improved it. If she didn't improve, then do a lorazepam trial to see if maybe this was catatonia. So in terms of what happened over the next 10 days, she did not have any improvement with the vitamin repletion, with this five-day steroid challenge, or with the lorazepam challenge. And actually her neurologic exam during this time continued to decline. She stopped following all commands before she was able to intermittently follow commands, but now she wasn't able to follow any commands. She became mute, she completely stopped talking and she was able to still move her extremities spontaneously, but we noticed she had increased motor tone. She also developed myoclonus and then developed an exaggerated startle response to any external stimuli, including touch, anticipated touch, or light stimuli, which we called startle myoclonus. So given what's happened over the hospital course at this point, walk me through what you're thinking and what your next steps would be. I'll go ahead and provide some, some thoughts. So that's quite rapid decline um, of, a, of a condition to, to to depress the neurological system in multiple domains. Uh, the cessation of, of speaking, and I, I, I doubt, and I do not think that's due to an acute stroke because it sounds as though it's been progressive decline as opposed to an abrupt new neurological sign. Uh, the addition now of myoclonus, an exaggerated startle, I, I think what comes to mind is, um, is prion disease or Kutzfeldt-Jakob. Usually that's a typically month's history of progressive cognitive impairment where one starts to develop um, exaggerated startle. So in the way we test for that is you walk up them, you clap your hands without telegraphing. And if they have really a quite a startled behavioral response to it, um, that, is, that is how we kind of define an exaggerated startle response. Um, the myoclonus now shows some degree of neuromuscular hyperactivity. Um, and I think taking her history and these together, there's, there's a condition that I'm thinking about. Uh, it's called NMD or anti-NMD receptor encephalitis. Um, as uh, one, uh, and uh, that is treatable as opposed to prion disease. Unfortunately, it is not. Those were the two things that we were thinking of as well at this point. And so we decided to get another EEG and repeat the MRI. So let's go over those labs now. She did have this new EEG finding 13 days after the e initial EEG we talked about earlier. And now the description was generalized slowing of background rhythms in the two to five Hertz range and near continuous generalized sharp waves of durations of 100 to 150 milliseconds and recurring at approximately every 0.6 to one second intervals. These discharges were also symmetrically distributed over both hemispheres. So the impression was an abnormal EEG characterized by generalized slowing of background rhythms and periodic epileptiform discharges. Dr. Yi, can you help break, break down all of these words for us into um, something we can understand? <laughs> Uh, sure, I'll do my best as a non-epilepsy uh, specialist. The brain likes to be chaotic for us to behave normally, as odd as that sounds. So seizures is an abnormal cooperation of brain activity in that sense, that when you have rhythmic, when you go from chaos electrical communication to now perfectly smooth and rhythmic discharges again and again and again, that is what seizures look like. And so when we start to see generalized fairly rhythmic activity on an EEG that really suggests a pathology. And certain diseases have unique characteristics. And if I'm not mistaken, some of these findings of ryth uh, rhythmicity and the distribution, I believe can be seen in Creutzfeldt-Jakob or prion disease. But again, even though it says that there's generalized snow slowing of the background rhythm and periodic epileptiform discharges, the latter part of the description just means that the brain is irritable from something. It's not a seizure. And that the brain, again, doesn't usually appear slow in terms of its electrical uh, frequency. Uh, whenever you read slowing, 
that means that there is a global disturbance of the cerebral function, whatever that condition is. Uh, so I hope that wasn't more confusing uh, what I was describing. No, that's actually helpful because when I read these descriptions and impressions in the EEG reports, it always feels like a foreign language. So that was actually helpful. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about the MRI findings. So I'm going to show one cut of the T2 flare sequence and then the diffusion sequence. Dr. Yu, do you mind walking us through kind of what you're looking at? Sure. We'll talk about the T2 flare. The fundamental points of that sequence is that it washes away water. That's why the CSF around the brain is dark, and including the CSF in the ventricular system. And the picture sequence highlights tissue pathologies being bright or brighter, we call hyperintense. Uh, and so the relevant abnormal findings around the left frontal horns, there is some hyperintense or sort of cone areas that are a little bright white that are just around the quadinucleus or uh, and then if you go to the midsections of the scans, in these areas that are around the basal ganglia, you see these couple little white spots there. Those so far don't uh, specify any unique disease. That's what is described as small vessel disease, uh, where you might see more dramatic um, distributions of these in characteristic locations. So just the left picture doesn't tell me a whole lot. The picture on the right, however, looks abnormal. Um, the, pic, the fusion sequences um, is the same MRI, except it highlights cytotoxic damage as being bright. So although there might be some subtle changes, I assume it was not abnormal like this before, but I think it's abnormal now. What uh, is hyperintense is if you kind of just glance where things look a little brighter. The right caudic nucleus, it looks like a half moon on the right side of the brain. So uh, by convention, the, what you're looking at it, to what is to our left is the patient's right brain and the opposite is the other side of the brain. So the upper part is the anterior part of the brain and in the deep right part, there's this half moon shaped thing that looks a little bright. The corresponding left caudal nucleus looks a little bright as well, as well as the putamen just louder to it. So together, those are the basal ganglia. Uh, the, there are areas along the cortical uh, regions bilaterally that are a little bit hyper intense as well or bright. The right mid temporal lobe, both medial areas of the occipital cortices, and then the left insular cortex. So the, the, the bottom line is this is that there are um, subtle but present, I think it's true and true, areas that are bright around the left frontal cortex, insular cortex, as well as some deep gray nuclei. And taken together, this really increases the, I think, concerns for Kreutzfeldt Jakob uh, as, as one, one possibility. In terms of the read for these, the result was diffusion and signal abnormalities of the bilateral basal ganglia, non which was nonspecific, but may be seen in the setting of encephalitis, viral or autoimmune, or toxic metabolic disorders, or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. So we did talk about some things that we think could be going on, like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. So we did um, a repeat lumbar puncture to get additional labs for her. We got a myelin basic protein, which was normal. We the, At this point, the autoimmune encephalitis panel that we had previously previously sent off with the initial CSF came back from Mayo Clinic as negative. And then all of the prion labs that we collected from the CSF came back as positive. So those included T-tau, 1433 protein, neuron-specific enolase, and the RT-quick assay. So everything came back positive. At this point, the diagnosis seemed to be Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Looking at the CDC 2018 diagnostic criteria for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, given her lab results, her MRI abnormalities, her EEG findings, and her exam, that put her in the category of probable sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. We talked to the family extensively about what we thought was going on and that, unfortunately, there's no direct treatment for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and it, and it is a terminal illness. So the family elected to take the patient home uh, on home hospice after being admitted for 17 days. And then she passed away two weeks after discharge and the family declined autopsy. Briefly to talk about prion disease, it's a rapidly progressive fatal neurodegenerative degenerative disorder. And all humans have prion protein, um, but the disease is caused when that prion protein becomes misfolded. And there's really three main groups of prion diseases. There's sporadic, genetic, and acquired. Acquired includes iatrogenic causes and ingestion, also known as kuru. Sporadic is the most common, making up 85 to 90% of the cases. Genetic makes up 10 to 15% of the cases, and acquired is less than 1% of the cases.
And the diagnosis is historically challenging. Challenging The gold standard is actually autopsy, but at that point, the patient's already passed away, so you get the diagnosis late. But there are lab tests that we got on this patient, specifically the RT-QUIC and uh, the other three, the neuron-specific enolase, the 14.33 protein, and the T-TAL that can help support the diagnosis. But we can't call it definite unless we have tissue, so that's why we're calling it probable. In terms of the incidence of sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, it's one to two cases per 1 million people, and it's hypothesized to be from post-translational modifications of the prion protein. The mean age at presentation is 62 years old, and the presentation includes dementia, myoclonus, akinetic mutism, gait disturbance, ataxia, extrapyramidal and pyramidal signs, and an exaggerated startle response. And our patient today actually had many of these findings and was in the right age range. So given all the history, the presentation, the physical exam, and all the labs, um, do either of you have any comments on prion disease? I'm actually curious to see if you've ever seen it before. I've never seen it. I definitely have to admit it wasn't <laughs> quite on my differential because we don't see it often, but this is a very interesting case. And what's really interesting is that you kind of saw her progress through um, these symptoms too. It's like you caught her very early when she was in this kind of cognitive change, and then she progressed to have these other symptoms in the hospital. So kind of unfolded right before your eyes. Um, I think these cases are very challenging and, um, you know, we often rely so heavily on our neurology <laughs> consults, um, and they're such a huge asset in helping us kind of, um, you know, tease out these types of diseases. So I'm sure neurology was <laughs> heavily involved in this case. Yeah, they were, they were our helpful guides the whole time. <laughs> um, well, well, thank you for that plug. Um, I, um, I would I would probably um, um, like to just add in that uh, I, I have seen a number of cases uh, both in training and in practice, um, and they they don't all have a, a unifying presentation. Although many of them have very similar characteristics, um, what I think I, I often try to think about first is identifying a condition that I can fix, treat, or make better. Um, as opposed to this being one of the rapidly progressive dementing syndromes, unfortunately, that we don't have a cure or treatment for right now. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, it is a concern based on, uh, on the rapid progression and one of the rare diseases that is lethal uh, very quickly in the neurological world of things, unfortunately. It's a fascinating syndrome and condition. Yeah, it is. To be honest, I never thought I would actually see it. I mean, maybe in my career, but didn't, never expected to see it during medical school. To wrap up, I just wanted to give you both a chance to see if you had any lasting clinical pearls or advice for medical students in their clinical years when they encounter altered mental status. I know at least in my, my short amount of time I've been in the hospital, I've, I've encountered it quite a bit. And so I foresee as I go into residency, I'm gonna encounter it a lot. So I'm just curious to see what, what clinical pearls or advice you have for folks early in their training. I think one of the things is to keep a broad differential. We didn't talk about uh, the approach to altered mental status, but um, for medicine folks, we often use the acronym MOVE STUPID and folks can look that up, but um, that's a helpful mnemonic just to kind of help you remember all the big categories. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that, uh, you know, the oftentimes the answer is really in the history. And in this case, um, it really was in the history. It was kind of a very acute change, rapid, um, and so just to, to always do a very, very good history, um, as get, get as much history from family members that you can if the patient's not able to give you history and do a very good exam. I'd absolutely agree. And I think just some parting uh, thoughts is that um, for, for us, the neurological world uh, and the neurological examination are critical because what I might miss on history, I might identify an examination that makes me and teaches me to go back and get additional important history. Um, and I think the patient's transition and rapid decline on her examination really is what uh, I think further guided and tailored uh, a, a much more um, a much more narrow differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. The I think the red flags in her particular case was the fairly rapid progression. The fact that multiple domains uh, were affected not only of her nervous system but also her psyche. Um, and many nervous system disorders don't affect the psychological world of things, right? Strokes usually don't, they cause aphasia. And so I'd say a, a parting message in when examining patients that uh, have altered mental status or delirium or, or quote encephalopathy 
is really try to identify if they have a focal impairment that affects uh, mental status and or language as a differentiating feature to guide, is it just quote delirium? That's from some underlying medical problem? Or do they have a lateralizing sign and they truly can't name an object, can't follow a command that's different than just being a little sleepy uh, from a medical condition? Yeah, no, it was a wonderful case. Thank you. Yeah, very good case. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for participating and making this such a lively discussion. I know I learned a lot preparing this case, and now I just even learned even more listening to your clinical reasoning. And I hope our listeners will also take something away from this as well. Uh, I also wanted to thank Dr. Aronowitz for his guidance on making this podcast. And thanks to Stephanie, who did all the work on this podcast. She uh, invited our participants, who were excellent. She prepared the case, and she recorded and edited uh, most of the discussion. So thank you, Stephanie, for a great job on this podcast. Stephanie will be heading off to New York University Internal Medicine Residency starting at the end of June to continue her training there. So good luck to Stephanie. Uh, Leading into this podcast, you heard Pedro Guasti playing Here Comes the Sun. And exiting this podcast, you're listening to Here Comes the Sun, played live by Richie Havens. Enjoy and have a great day. See you next podcast. It's been a long, long, lonely winter. Little darling, it seems like years since it's been here. Here comes the sun Here comes the sun And I say It's alright Little darling The smiles are returning To the faces Little darling It seems like years Since they've been there Here comes the sun And I say It's alright It's alright